There was this other story that I came across of this man who lost his wife in a car accident and how he used generative AI to create a chatbot that could talk to him like his wife used to. And so the chatbot helped him to grieve his loss and to feel connected to his wife again. Talk about a use case. Like that is a use case that really speaks to our humanity. Welcome to Emergence Now, the podcast where we explore breakthroughs in self-discovery, leadership, innovation, and technology. Join hosts Diren and Nikos. As two passionate entrepreneurs, we draw from our diverse backgrounds in business, technology, health, and spirituality. With Emergence Now, you'll get a fresh take on leveling up every aspect of your life and the principles you need to navigate an increasingly complex world. We dive deep into topics like creativity, the future of AI, biohacking, inner game, and so much more to share our insights, experiences, and the latest research on how to attain new levels of achievement, productivity, and awareness. So sit back, relax, and get ready to explore the future of humanity with us. Whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur, a thought leader, or simply curious about what lies within and how it impacts everything around you, Emergence Now is what you've been waiting for. Let's dive in. Hello, hello. Welcome to Emergence Now. I'm Darren Harchandani. I'm joined by my co-host, Nico Sakuna. Before we dive into the show, we noticed that there's a consistent number of people that are listening to the show, but haven't subscribed or hit the subscribe button. I wanted to take a moment to reach out to the folks who are listening, but not yet subscribed. I know that subscribing to a podcast can seem like a small thing, but it means a lot to us. Because when you subscribe, you're nudging the algorithms that determine the fate of podcast discovery. It's also, think of it as good karma to help curious minds like yours to find this podcast. Nikos, how are you? What's up, my friend? How you doing? Very well. So right off the bat, I wanted to just share with you a conversation that I was just having actually with my son. He was listening to the podcast and probably the, I'd say the fifth person this past week that told me that, hey, that Nikos guy, he's able to really distill complex ideas in a way that is really easy to understand. And this is something that I've known about you for a number of years, right? For 20 odd years. But I've forgotten that skill, that ability to just break it down, right? And to really communicate clearly. So I thought for myself and for the listeners, let's take a moment to understand how do you run the game? How do you think about a complex idea and then break it down to something that is easy to understand? Yeah, definitely. So it starts with awareness, right? If mm. you get to super crazy vernacular like AI often does when you're three layers deep into technical understanding and models and nodes and how those things operate, you have to kind of elevate it to different levels such that people can understand it. And usually you do that through analogy. And there's also an imaginative process and the awareness of thinking who your audience is. Do you want to communicate this to somebody that's at the high school level, maybe somebody younger at the eighth grade level, maybe somebody that's 10 years old, six years old? 
and you just go backwards from there. And you always start the conversation with some contextual understanding of who this person is, right? And based on who they are, you realize you can kind of dial things up or dial things down. So I always just start with that lever in mind with knowing who your audience is and being aware of that. To working backwards, right? So figuring out who you're speaking to and then tailoring it to the audience. Because clearly, if you're speaking to an AI expert in the context of AI, you're not going to, or will you, break it down to the atomic level? Do you go down to first principles when you're speaking to someone who is quite advanced in their understanding of that given topic? That's a super interesting subject just because everybody has a different perspective and the way that they communicate is not the way that you communicate. So I can't make the assumption, and I've done this before, I've done this through a lot of failure in my communication, either under communicating or using a lot of really niche vernacular and words and vocabulary that people don't really understand. And so you have to almost always over communicate in real time and make sure that you're approaching the subject matter from different angles, different entry points to make sure that you have kind of that common understanding. A basic question like what we got into in the last episode, like what is artificial intelligence? You ask a hundred people what artificial intelligence is, you're going to be all over the map. It's a nebulous concept. It's like asking what is life? What is consciousness? What is spirituality? What is God? Things that are so nebulous in nature. And this is what's very interesting about the human brain. The human brain works in what I call knowledge vectors, where you're constantly clustering bits of information into chunks that you can personally understand. And then as soon as you can understand them, that light bulb goes off. But for you, it could mean something different than somebody else. That's why we constantly have to play with these knowledge vectors to see if they're connecting with one another. And that's Mm. inherently how neurons work in the brain, which we'll definitely get into. I think that's an episode in itself. Yeah. So this week, Threads launched the biggest news out of the tech world. It's amazing, right? It took 20 people under nine months to build this. Uh, are you on it? To I build am. this application. I am. I'm on it. Started playing yeah. with it. So there's numerous things that are interesting about it. As it enters the public consciousness and kind of what's going on between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon, if you're looking at it, all of the conversation just around- big is ass. Just measuring contests and going into the cage. And it's just, once you get to that level, you would think that you have a higher level of sophistication, but they're clearly in like, Elon at least is acting like he's in third grade again, being punked around by Zuck. But- If you look at what they're doing from a product standpoint, it's super interesting. I think it's not interesting from just a pure differentiated product standpoint, but it's interesting what they're doing from an adoption standpoint, right? So if Elon takes over Twitter, fires 75% of the folks that are there, obviously he cut a ton of the fat. That's interesting from a business perspective, and it's still operating the way that it was. It's not 75% worse than it was, but are they offering things that are new and innovative. I'm sure there are things that are forthcoming, but Zuck just went heads down and said, this is what we could really do in six months time with 20 people. And we're seeing more organizations that are doing a whole lot more with a whole lot less. And I definitely want to get into what that means when we're talking about exponential organizations in the future. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about this morning about how Musk paid $44 billion for Twitter. And Zuckerberg built threads, which is almost like a replica. Yeah, there are a lot of features in Twitter that's not on threads yet, but 
I mean, to build something of this scale in under nine months with 20 people that has the potential to increase enterprise value from what I've been reading, close to three to $4 billion. Now that they've crossed the 100 million user mark, it's astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. It is. Right? So uh, it's not like Zuckerberg one Musk zero. Yeah. Well, let me push back on that a little bit, though, because I feel like Zuck almost wouldn't have done it without Elon doing what he did. So Elon does what he does by yeah. doing the very hard things. He was looking at this more from a socioeconomic geopolitical standpoint and looking at what was happening during the pandemic and the manipulation of information. We're seeing all of this information start to come out about how Twitter had manipulated people withholding information, working directly with the feds on it, things like that that are being proven and validated day by day. And Elon being a free speech guy, I am all about it. I don't think Zuck would have done that because he was under the same kind of scrutiny for Meta and what they were doing and withholding yeah. information. So somebody's always got to do the hard thing. So I wouldn't put too much credit to Zuck, but it's interesting how things pan out given if one domino falls, it causes just a cascading ripple effect throughout the entire industry and people seize an opportunity once that starts to happen. Yes, I would maybe say it's half a point for Zuck. I don't think Threads is super innovative a product in itself, but the way that he went to market with it and drove adoption, obviously that's huge. But let's see what they actually do with the product to see if they could move into the future a little bit more closely to the vision that Meta had essentially incentivized people to do so, just kind of moving into this new Web3 world. Yeah, there's nothing innovative about it. Other than the fact that it's decentralized, there's really nothing innovative about Threads. I mean, I have noticed that it's far more positive when I look at my feed. It's positive. I got on Twitter and I'm just seeing a lot of things that I would rather not see. And I mean, that all comes down to the algorithm. But yeah, it seems like definitely they've learned from the lessons from Meta and all the mistakes that they've made there and carrying it over to threads. So, so far, it seems like a much cleaner, much more positive experience. And when you say positive, are you speaking of just the UI UX or what people are responding Content. to? Content. Okay. Yeah. Good. So you yes. have Gary V saying, yeah. good morning. How are you guys doing? So, yeah. I mean, that's not something that you really see in on Twitter. No, definitely. So if there are, so this is what gets it really, really interesting, right? Is if there are data scientists in the background and they're basically tweaking the algorithm such that you are... So here's a good step back and not to dive into AI too quickly, right? But we realized based on the movie, The Social Dilemma, and everybody knows it, that social media has polarized society in some way because people react to more of these primal instincts and things that are divisive. You are nine times more likely to share something that's a little bit more controversial in nature. And mm. that has resulted in the polarization of where America is today because of the fact that the algorithms really kind of tapped into more of our primal instincts and caused a whole ton of outrage and negative detriments to society, that was a huge loss for people in general as a result of the tech world. 
if you're saying, and I don't have evidence to fully back this up yet, as we definitely need to dig into this, but if you're saying and suggesting that overall it seems like a good experience, there's more positive things going on, and we can confirm that data scientists in the background are giving the AI a pat on the head when something positive went out, like a good shout, something positive, then that's a game changer right there. Then I would say that is- It feels like it. Then that's a it huge dub up. It definitely feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. So- Speaking of tech entrepreneurs, last week's episode, we scratched the surface on artificial intelligence. And so we provided a foundation to why we should care about AI. And for this week's episode, how do we prioritize what's important as trends are constantly changing in the space, right? Yeah. Where do we really focus our energy? That's just such a good question. I feel like from last week, we just barely scratched the surface. And so we can talk about the tech. We can talk about its implications. Everybody wants to know how it's transforming their lives. And obviously, this is what I've been studying for the past decade or so, just in terms of that nexus between humanity and technology as a whole and AI just being right at the center of it and how it can augment our intelligence and how it can enhance our intelligence like you eloquently put last week. So let's sum up some of the points from last week. AI, we defined it. Hold that thought. Yeah. Before we go into summarizing the thoughts, because when I speak to people about AI, there's a great deal because you said humanity and it made me think about the conversations that I've been having. And I think we mentioned this in last week's episode where there's a great deal of fear around AI, right? And on this show, I want to highlight that we don't see AI as a threat to humanity, but it can be a threat to humanity if we're not informed and if we don't adapt. So it's critical to really understand, which is why we're going into building the basics or building on the basics, the foundation. So as the world is changing rapidly, right? There are new technologies that are popping up all the time. And our work on this podcast is to really break down these complex topics, these concepts. We're not going to sugarcoat it, right? AI is a complex topic, but what we're going to do is our best to make sure that we are able to share with our listeners that What's key is for us to adapt. Adaptability is key. It's here to stay. It's going to change the way we live, work, and play. And so we don't see it as a threat, but we do see it as this force for good as long as we make sure that we adapt and embrace the change that this is going to bring. So today we're not going to predict the future or in this series, we're not going to predict the future, but we're going to talk about the possibilities and we're going to do it with a healthy dose of optimism. So you were saying, let's recap from last week. Yes, let's definitely- Let's go a little deeper. Yeah, I'll definitely take us a little deeper, but I would like to just close the loop on one of the points that you made because there are definitely people that consider AI a threat right now. And I want to make folks aware of both. We're definitely tilting toward the positive because I am an optimist around technology abundance in general. But there are lots of people that do work in the space like Max Tegmark, Jeffrey Hinton. Elon has been talking about AI safety for a really long time. Nick Bostrom. Lots of folks that have even went so far as to sign a petition collectively to halt the innovation and the development of new AI models. But I think it's personally too late just because you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. 
but we'll definitely get into or that. Or the genie in the bottle. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's out, and there's implications just with respect to, okay, well, if we halt AI innovation, then will China do the same? Or if you halt innovation, then wouldn't regulation essentially just keep the power centralized, which is exactly what we don't want. But that's just my overarching opinion. So yes. So to pick up where we left off from last episode, we defined AI. And I feel like the broadest definition of AI is any entity that can sense things, they can pick up, like my retina receptors are taking in light from different patterns. I can sense things. A computer can do the same. It can think. So I'm processing as I'm taking things in. Darren, I'm looking at you and I'm processing your face. You're looking at me on the screen and it's processing my face. You know that my name is Nikos, not Mary. And it's determining based on pattern recognition, it can basically distill things into these chunks and then comes an output. Now you can say something back to me. You can write something about Nikos. You can write something about a cat once you recognize it. So AI is essentially this entity's ability to sense, think, and act. And when you take that into a branch of computer science, it's basically something that simulates human intelligence in some way, shape, or form, right? So any machine that's able to perform these tasks, they typically require human type of intelligence. Robots are getting better at gripping things like drinking a cup of coffee, doing somersaults, running obstacle courses and things like that, but they're not quite there yet. And so now you can break down AI into narrow AI or what's considered weak AI or general and strong AI. General AI is what we think of AGI, more of what we see in science fiction movies, not kind of like the doom and gloom Terminators of the world, but just an AI that has an ability to not just play chess, but the ability to ride a bike, the ability to write a novel. More and more of the things that ChatGPT can do, right, which we'll get into in this conversation. The narrow AI systems are designed for these very specific tasks, right? They have very limited scope beyond those tasks. It can only play the game of Go, but it's doing so at genius, genius levels. Well, this narrow mm. AI can essentially predict whether or not somebody's going to click an ad for pizza versus a pair of shoes and whether or not they're more likely to buy something. That's a very narrow AI in itself. ChatGPT, which we'll talk about here, is turning more into a general purpose AI, right? It can code, it could write sonnets, it could create an outline for you of your next business plan. Now with Code Interpreter, it could actually distill data and actually turn it into charts and graphs. And with a lot of the ecosystem that's being built around it with these ChatGPT plugins, there's a whole lot more going on there, right? So AI essentially underneath that is working through these machine learning models, it involves training these AI models with data, algorithms, and models. So yeah, in this episode, we just want to continue to deconstruct it, getting into the technology a little bit more, discussing the different types of AI. And I realize we provided like lots of different examples in the episode, but we didn't actually spend nearly enough time on ChatGPT. So we'll do that today. Let's do it. Yeah. Before you jump into ChatGPT, for the benefit of the listeners, what do you mean by AGI? Hey there, we're taking a quick break from the show to let you know that if you'd like to invite Dirain or Nikos to speak at your next event on topics ranging from emergence and the inner game to the future of AI, we've got you covered. Simply email us at info at emergencenowpod.com. Once again, that's info at emergencenowpod.com. Now, let's dive back to the show. AGI. So that is a term that stands for artificial general intelligence or strong AI, right? And again, making the distinction between 
an AI that can just do a narrow task is weak AI. Mm. So an AI that can just play the game of Go or an AI that has beat Gary Kasparov in chess, it, that's a weak AI because that's the only thing that it was trained to do. Lots of different examples, millions and millions of chess configurations and play strategies. So it ingested all of that, but its outcome was just one. Get this other person to fold or checkmate as quickly as possible. General yeah. or strong AI means like it's more like a human. It can play chess. It can read the entire internet. It could be your shopping assistant. It can help you plan a trip. It can write Shakespearean sonnets and maybe even go so far as to help you write a novel. And in this age today, it can essentially help you be more creative. It can output photorealistic images just by talking to it. But an AGI feels more that movie with Joaquin Phoenix, Her. Very, Her. very good movie. For everybody that's interested in the subject, it's just very well done. And it's aged like fine wine. And it's more than 10 years old. So that is what's considered an AGI, somebody that feels more like a human, but is essentially made out of silicon. Yeah, great movie. We'll put it in the show notes. So what about deep learning? Yes, let's definitely talk about deep learning because that is a subset of AI and machine learning. It focuses on training these things called deep neural networks that are basically inspired by the structure and function of the human brain. And it enables AI systems to handle these really complex tasks and process large amounts of data. So neural networks, let's dive into neural networks. What are neural networks? There are these things in the brain called neurons that are basically these interconnected layers of nodes. And each node receives inputs. It performs these computations that allows you to recognize patterns. I mentioned, think of a cat right now, boom. There is a specific network of neurons that's firing in your brain when you're thinking of a cat. And what's happening with these neurons is it's passing information from one layer to another. And mm. ultimately, it generates a prediction. Therefore, you can think of a cat, you can recognize a cat, you can see a cat, you can interact with a cat. And these deep learning models are basically using representational learning. So it can learn based on these hierarchical representations. So let me kind of pull that back a little bit just because that gets a little complex. So when we recognize a cat, you notice whiskers, you notice the shape of the eyes, you notice fur, you might notice what type of a cat it is, whether it's a Maine Coon or like a little kitten, you start to categorize these different things. And basically those little features tear up to what a cat is. So mm. different hierarchical levels, these whiskers, these eyes, this fur, these patterns equate to a cat. And then all of a sudden that neuron fires and says, yep, that's definitely a cat. Same thing when I'm looking at you. Oh, Deeran's wearing his nice shirt. I see that he's got his handsome hairdo and his skin tone. And obviously I would recognize you as a person. And all of those respective parts need to come together as a whole for that neuronal network to fire. So deep learning excels at that really, really well when you're basically training these algorithms with lots of images of cats lots of images of sofas, lots of images, and basically lots of data that we know right now. And based on the complexity of those neural networks, these deep learning models are achieving state-of-the-art performance in many domains because of the fact that they're trained on graphical processing units, the NVIDIA chips behind them that could basically process a ton of this data so that it can learn in real time. And a human doesn't have to be in the loop every single time saying, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a sofa. And CAPTCHA is doing that at some level, and you do need a human at some level 
to do it. But usually now these models are doing them on their own. Yeah. You mentioned AlphaGo. I remember watching AlphaGo a few years ago and rewatching it recently. I mean, I was just blown away. That's a deep learning program that was developed by DeepMind, which was then subsequently bought by Google. It's now part of Google. That's right. Those guys are Alpha, brilliant. I mean, AlphaGo was able to defeat a professional Go player. This was in 2016, right? Mm -hmm. Which was a major, major breakthrough. So what is Go is a board game known for its complexity. It's super complex. I remember reading that it surpasses even chess in its intricacy, not incrementally, but exponentially. So here's what's mind boggling. Nix, did you know that there's more possible board configurations in Go than there are atoms in the entire universe? I did know that, yeah. It's insane. It's absolutely, I mean, we know it, we've read it, we've seen it in the movie, in the documentary. Yes. But every time I think about it, it just blows me away, right? It's this incomprehensible statistic that truly highlights the immense challenge faced by players attempting to master this incredible game, right? So anyway, in 2009, 2010, somewhere around there, a few visionaries came together and they created this company called DeepMind. And this company created AlphaGo, which was trained on a massive data set of Go games, encompassing both professional and amateur players. And in the documentary, they show that they trained the system with vast pools of knowledge. So AlphaGo was developed on this profound understanding of the game. But how did AlphaGo actually learn to play Go? So it employed this ingenious technique known as what you mentioned, deep learning. And they did it through trial and error. And so AlphaGo was then refined. It refined its skills by playing thousands and thousands and thousands of games that were simulated games, which then evolved its strategy and honing in on its gameplay, right? So it was this huge win for AI in terms of its advancement because it showed the power of deep learning in mastering the complexities of Go. So in this documentary, we'll put it in the show notes, AlphaGo then faced off against one of the world's best players in Go. And what happened? I mean, I just remember this guy's face after game. Like he came in, I think in the first two games, he was looking really confident. And the third game and the fourth game, he was like this. And he just couldn't believe what was going on. So it was mesmerizing watching the matches. Anyway, AlphaGo dominated the human counterpart. And this stunned the Go community and the world at large. I remember it was such a watershed moment that marked this major breakthrough for deep learning, proving that complex problems previously thought to be insurmountable could actually be conquered. Yeah, definitely. So, what was interesting about that game, I think, if I recall correctly, it was like move 37 in the last game. What's interesting about Go, based on what you had just said, the connections that need to be made and the number of combinations to win, it's no longer a calculation. So what people say about Go, and I've only started playing it recently, just it, the amount of time it takes to master is obviously crazy, but you need to pick up a little bit more on human intuition. So it's not just calculating and memorizing each and every one of these moves because there's so many different moves. 
And so what Move 37, I think in AlphaGo, what it did was people reacted to it such that it acted more like a human. It was like, whoa, it provided this intuitive move that people didn't anticipate. So there was a level of this novel creativity in it that it acted somewhat like human. So there were glimpses of this AGI in this thing that projected some creativity that people interpreted as being a little bit more novel, more intuitive, like a human. So that's what's interesting about the story you're telling. Yeah, it's interesting how that triumph unleashed an array of applications to deep learning, right? I mean, yep. now, obviously, we've spoken about it. It's powering self-driving cars to aiding medical diagnoses to even generating captivating art So, and image recognition. I mean, it's fascinating how that was such a breakthrough in deep learning history or in AI history. Definitely. Yeah. So let's continue on that because there was an aspect as it was Dennis Hasibis and his team and definitely kudos to that team for doing what they've been doing at Google for such a long time. They were employing both supervised methodologies and unsupervised learning methodologies with all of those training examples, right? So in supervised learning, the training data consists of input samples that are paired with corresponding label outputs. And so ImageNet did the very same thing with cats on the internet, right? Like millions and millions of images of cats. And then they had an input label that said, these are cats. And the same thing with lots of other labeled patterns or non-labeled patterns. And the goal was for the AI model to basically learn the mapping between those inputs and outputs. Mm. And like you just said, there's lots of different use cases for this. The first gen ones that were most useful was email spam classification, basically just training yeah. a model with labeling emails as spam or non-spam based on classifying these unseen emails. And you could tell from the content, right, if it says Viagra on them or it looks like a crazy promo with lots of different emojis and lots of exclamation points, it feels a little bit more like spam, right? Digit recognition, training a model with labeled images of handwritten digits to recognize new digits in these images and really just distinguishing that from unsupervised learning because in unsupervised learning, the training data basically consists of these input samples without labeled outputs. So the model learns to identify those patterns or groupings within the data based on how it clusters different information, how it's clustering customer data, and then basically reducing the dimensionality of all of those attributes and parameters into data sets that contain these clusters. So that's unsupervised learning. And now we can get into generative AI. So you mentioned spam. I remember last week I got an email from a friend who sent me an email and my response to the email was going to be a short three sentence response. And so I used AI to generate the response. And a few days later, we were having this conversation that he asked me, he said, did you notice anything about my response to your email? And I said, no, nothing out of the ordinary. He responded to the email that I sent him. So he said, I used AI to respond to your email. And what was fascinating is now I used AI to respond to his original email. Then he used AI to respond to my email. And so now the AI is emailing the AI and the humans are actually out of the equation. We're starting to see more of these agents, right? These intermediary agents that interact in between and on behalf us humans. And we'll definitely be seeing a whole lot more of that. This gets into 
a little bit more of the Wild West that we had once imagined of these agents, these autonomous agents interacting with one another, but we're definitely seeing glimpses of that. My hesitation or my the caveat to make people aware of there is to always, always put the AI on check as long as there's an off switch around it and you're not hooking it up to all of your bank accounts and everything. You just need to be yeah. super cognizant of the data, the APIs that are being opened up in this entire ecosystem, and just be very wary of the systems that have access to your personal information because it's more and more becoming a part of you the same way that our devices are a part of our cognition. We're essentially exporting our cognition into our mobile phones, right? Our memories are probably getting worse, but we're getting a whole lot smarter with these devices that are now becoming more and more a part of our lives. Okay, so on this show, we're never gonna tell you what to think about AI, but we're gonna give you the tools to think for yourself. But Nikos, you said something that is so critical. So when you say don't connect it to your bank accounts, can you double click on that and unpack that further? Because I think that's a very important point. Yeah, absolutely. So it's easy for us to just accept terms and conditions and hit the accept button whenever we want to do something to the point in which we're signing up for so many different solutions and offers and platforms. And how many logins do you personally have in your life right now? A dozen, 50, 100, maybe 200 across different platforms. Not only that, but Chrome and all of these APIs, application programming interfaces, are basically making it easier to store that login information so that whenever you sign up for a new service, it becomes easier and you don't have to remember these passwords every time. But if you're applying for a new service or, God forbid, you get an email that says, hey, check out this offer or you're one of those poor idiots that actually respond to the Prince of Nigeria who needs help and needs some kind of donation and says, hey, guess what? If you donate $50 to me right now, wire up your bank account and you'll get $100,000 for me and you'll basically get my tithings based on this offer. Then if you fall for that, then you're kind of in a bad spot. But these platforms, if it prompts you to basically give up information like your bank account, your social security number, any kind of personal data, you just need to be really weary of it and understand where the source is coming from. Or one, it could be a scam. Two, it could be an AI that's basically phishing for that kind of information. So you basically need to be more than ever before very cognizant of what platforms you let into your life and what data mm. you give up and just have an extra layer of care and awareness in doing so. Yeah. If you fell for that email and you're listening to the show, we're not judging you, but I would highly recommend that you continue listening to the show so that you're more aware of what's out there and the latest trends in fraud. Okay. <laughs> All right. So generative AI. Yes. Let's talk about generative AI. Yeah, let's so do it. So how are we using generative AI at the moment? For the listeners, what is generative AI and how are we already using it? Definitely. Generative AI, it's all the buzz right now, right? Generative AI is the next evolution and it's that next emergent threshold, the next phase shift in AI, right? And Generative models are basically these algorithms that learn the underlying patterns and structure of data to, instead of making a prediction, the outcome is just generating a new sample that resembles the original data distribution. So what do I mean by that? Just like we, let's stick with the cat example, right? The generative model is taking in lots of examples of cats, but instead of basically predicting 
a discriminative model is saying, this is a cat, this is not a cat. It's basically using the original data and outputting a new image of a cat. It's never going to be exactly like the original image of all of those cats. It's basically a collective network of all of the data it received before. And then when the output comes out, it's a new version of a cat that we've never seen before. Three years ago, generative adversarial networks were all the buzz, right? So the whole thing about deep fakes that everybody was kind of making a lot of noise about three years ago during the pandemic, these were based on generative adversarial networks. And what they did was one model was basically trying to see whether or not the initial image was fake. And then it was basically up leveling that and saying, no, this is not fake here. Let me do a little bit better. And so these mm. generative adversarial networks are popular generative models and it's used in images, it text and music. And basically when it's analyzing these large amounts of data to understand these patterns, the styles, the relationships can all be broken down in these little parameters. It's generating new synthetic data, right? So once the model learns the data distribution, it could basically generate new samples that resemble the original data and it produces these novel outputs. Fascinating. So give us some examples of how we're already using generative AI day-to-day. -day. So not everybody is using generative AI day-to-day. -day. I think the best use cases of generative AI today are in stable diffusion and mid-journey. So lots of folks are already playing with this, right? I would also say that for most people, because we could see the adoption rate growing day-to-day, -day, the most obvious example is ChatGPT. So I'll take Midjourney first because it's a little bit more of an obtuse use case. But if you are entering a prompt into the CLI tool on Discord, you just hit forward slash imagine and you say, I want a flying cat that looks like Dumbo with the hair of Matt Damon mixed with Tom Cruise and Back <laughs> to the Future. And it generates this photorealistic image of that. And it literally takes in all the data of a cat, of Dumbo, of Matt Damon, of Tom Cruise, Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future, and it combines all of those different things and it outputs these very imaginative visuals. Now with ChatGPT, which we are using on a day-to-day -day basis because more and more people are using them, you're basically prompting it with whatever you need, right? Write me a blog post in 500 words or less about generative AI. Write me a YouTuber script about AI and it'll do that for you. Write me a business plan. Write me a cap table. What does that look like? It could basically be your thinking partner for absolutely everything. Just by predicting the next word, it can generate a lot of these examples. Why? Because it read the entire internet. It's read all scientific papers that are available digitally. And lots of really smart researchers at OpenAI are constantly training these models to the degree in which it's now able to generate all of these very cool things from charts and graphs, images, papers, essays, even whole books. So you as an author can now not just edit your book, but you can basically flesh out new chapters of that book, new iterations of that book. And I've been using it to write my own book about AI and it's just been, it's been a godsend. Like what normally would take me like a six month process, which is still very fast for an author, I could probably do in six weeks or less. Yeah, I was doing some research. That's so in six weeks or less, wow, that's a quantum leap. It is. I was looking at generative AI and different use cases, and the story of Val Kilmer came up. He was playing a character in Top Gun called Iceman. And 
in real life, Val Kilmer has this condition where he's losing his voice, essentially. And they use generative AI to actually recreate his original voice. And so in my research, a story of this young woman, Eva, who was born with a very rare condition. I'm not sure if it was the same condition, but she was unable to speak. So she basically learned how to communicate through sign language. But she longed to be able to speak like everyone else, right? And so one day her parents heard about this new technology called generative AI and how this technology could be used to create a synthetic voice that sounded extremely realistic. And her parents decided to give it a try and they were amazed with the results. And so now she's using generative AI to be able to create a voice that sounded just like her own before she lost it. So she was finally able to speak to her family, her friends. She was able to express herself in ways that she never thought was ever possible. Absolutely. So it's super inspiring. I mean, when you look at what technology, what AI can do, can enable people who are not able to speak and now all of a sudden they have a voice. I mean, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about that. Absolutely. Uh, and imagine if it's a family member. I love it. Just goes to show that there's inherent code written in all of us and not to be too deep about it, but if everything is in fact information, like we've discovered with DNA sequencing and what we can do with gene splicing and gene therapy and things like that. And now yeah. the ability to replicate that to the point in which it's filling in gaps and augmenting us, there's just so much hope for humanity and healthcare and things like that. So imagine this artist with an unlimited imagination. It's tirelessly creating these unique masterpieces in split second time, right? That's generative AI. It goes beyond just understanding and processing data. Instead, it's creating these entirely new types of content like images, text, music, and these models learn from existing data. It's understanding the patterns and the structures, and it's creating these new samples that resemble the original data. And an AI model, it observes a ton of this data, it learns the ins and outs, the styles, the patterns. Once it's got a grip on it, it starts doing its own work, much like the apprentice becoming a master. Generative AI is basically like an art factory because it just can crank on all of these different ideas, right? It produces everything from hyper-realistic images to transformative pieces of art. And in your example, voice recognition that's now being generated to augment a person's original gap. So taking one style and applying it to another, it's blending technology and creativity in the most remarkable way. So it's not just about number crunching. It's about bringing this whole new level of creativity into the world of technology. Yeah. There was this other story that I came across of this man who lost his wife in a car accident and how he used generative AI to create a chatbot that could talk to him like his wife used to. And so the chatbot helped him to grieve his loss and to feel connected to his wife again. Talk about a use case. Like that is a use case that really speaks to our humanity. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. That's a company, yeah. right? Let's, I'd invest in that. Resurrection.ai. Yeah. Is it a company? No, I don't. I just made that up right now. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. You had me at resurrection. Yeah. You want to invest? <laughs> I have a white paper and a website. That's all you need. Give me $5 million. I'll get it done. I think that's all you need these days for an AI company. 
So ChatGPT. Yeah, let's get into it. Are you still are you still using ChatGPT? I use it every day. Absolutely. You do? Every single day. Yeah. And more than Bard? Are you using Bard? I'm, I'm playing with Bard. Did you see what I put up on, on my story about Bard? I asked Bard. Yeah. Hi, Bard. Yeah. What do you think of Emergence Now, the podcast? Yeah. Did you see its response? I did see the response. It's hallucinating. So why don't you read folks the response? This is cool. You want me to read the response? Okay. Yeah. So, so I asked Bard, hi, what do you think of Emergence Now, the podcast? So it responds with thinking, thinking, thinking. And then it jumps in and says, Hi, I think Emergence Now is a great podcast. The hosts, Darren Harchandani and Nico Sacuna, do a great job of exploring the intersection of inner growth and global transformation. They t here's where it's hallucinating, as you said. They talk to a wide range of guests, from scientists to entrepreneurs to artists, and they always ask thought-provoking questions. I've learned a lot from listening to the podcast, and I found it to be very inspiring. Here's some of the things I like about Emergence Now. The hosts are knowledgeable and engaging. They have a deep understanding of the topics they discuss, and they're able to communicate complex ideas in a clear and accessible way. Bro, it's not hallucinating. It's manifesting. Ah, I like that. There you go. Hence, we should call it AI, artificial intuition. Yes. And if I have multiple personality disorder, I see myself as a Nobel laureate researcher in, in, in AI. Scientist. So there you go. Breaking down complex ideas. No, totally. To its atomic level. Well, that's a perfect so, segue, right? So you don't use Bard? Not as much. I like that it's hooked up to the internet, but you can see where the follies are because of the fact that it's having to crunch a whole lot more. It hallucinates more. It's not as accurate. So it's not as refined a model as GPT-4, even 3.5. But I am playing with it a little bit more. But chat GPT is basically in my back pocket for absolutely everything that I do. First draft okay, of everything. So you're still using it as the OG. It's the OG. The OG. You're yeah. still with the OG chatbot. Yeah. So what are you using it for? I'm using it for everything from giving me a first draft for blog posts, giving me script notes for events that I'm producing, media productions that I'm producing, business plans, project initiatives, proposals, you name it. And mostly my power user. Yeah, I'm a power user. My book, playing with Langchain on building some apps on it. So I never got beyond my C++ computer science and coding. And so <laughs> beginner level 101 in Python, hello world, baby. But now with Code Interpreter, I can basically like code. Like I moved from beginner to intermediate and somewhat advanced fairly quickly with Code Interpreter. So yeah, doing some, just playing with coding. Obviously I need to, uh, cool. I have lots of really smart devs on my team that could code on my behalf so I don't have to and focus on the business. But if I just want to play with making an app, I just want to be dangerous, dangerous enough to understand the technology, obviously. So what is the future? Yeah. Where do you see this going? And the reason I asked that question was I read an article recently about, I don't know if you saw this, it was on the verge. The subject of the, was something along the lines of AI is killing the old web and the new web struggles to be born. So I read this article about how AI is killing the old web. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's this avalanche of AI generated content on the internet. Have you noticed how mm -hmm. much content there is on the internet that looks and seems like it's AI generated, it's taken it by storm, right? And so these chatbots basically are now generating content that's so realistic 
and engaging that you can't tell the difference whether it was created by a chatbot or by a human, right? Yeah. But here's the thing. So this article talks about how it's causing a bit of a stir in the web scraping world. So web scraping is the practice of extracting information from websites, right? Mm -hmm. And with these AI models joining the game, we're now experiencing a whole new wave of scraping. So these models are basically scraping content from existing websites and then generating new content that's virtually indistinguishable from the original. Yeah. Now, the implication for the web as we know it is interesting because now it's getting harder and harder to tell the difference between content that's been scraped and content that's genuinely original. Totally. And unfortunately, so it's leading to this decline in the overall quality of the web. Yep. And I'm seeing it, like just on my feed, for example, like I'm seeing a lot more AI-generated content, and you can tell that the substance, the essence, isn't quite the humanity. The feeling just isn't there totally. if you really tap into it. So this article was talking about how now regulating AI-powered web scraping is not easy and how we also need to make sure that the content generated by these models is accurate and unbiased, but it's a really tough problem to solve. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a good lens to break down what's going on under the hood of chat GPT. So there's a portion that's around information and explanation. There's elaboration, there's language generation, and then there's referencing different knowledge sources based on all of the knowledge that it's drank. So the language model, it's essentially providing these explanations, its techniques, the applications, challenges. There's lots of ethical considerations like you had mentioned, but it can basically take its knowledge, understand the topic. It can provide these comprehensive and accurate explanations for it. It can also assist in generating these structured outlines ensuring that these points are covered in a very logical order. It can expand on the content, specifying different concepts. Mm. It can expand on those concepts in a different web. It could provide additional details, examples, insights. It could just keep regenerating it, and it's going to be new every single time. You're never going to get the same thing twice. Is it really? Because yeah. I find that I'm getting the same thing multiple times. But it's never going to be in the exact same words. So it's, you get it, you get out what you put in. So it's always going to be based on the prompt. So if you rejigger the prompt a little bit as a good prompt engineer that you are, then you would get just a very slight tweak. You can see this a whole lot more with the stable diffusion in mid-journey with the ones that are outputting images. But if you're tweaking the prompt a little bit more and you notice that if your prompt was like a couple of paragraphs long and you have ChatGPT emulate. paragraphs long? Yeah, oh, if you're having okay. it emulate, okay, now you are a PhD AI researcher and you are discussing the potential risks of artificial intelligence. Assess all of the risks today and then lay it out in an outline form. That's going to be much different than just putting out a sentence and saying list out all the risks of AI today. So you have to be very, very precise with it. But like you had mentioned, you have to address these issues around evaluation and quality control. So there are metrics that you can use to assess the quality of those generated outputs. You got to develop these evaluation metrics to measure the realism, the diversity, the quality control. So I'm working with a bunch of folks right now to basically look at how AI could 
enhance information integrity in the future. And we could do this through these dynamic data objects where the human is in the loop a whole lot more. And I mentioned earlier supervised learning, and one of those techniques is reinforcement learning with human feedback, where you have a human in the loop that's checking a lot of these boxes. Well, what if you could do that like CAPTCHA, and if you could do that at scale? And that's what we're doing with Dial-In. And so we'll get into that a little bit later, but there are obviously a whole lot of ethical considerations here, right? Like you mentioned, ownership rights generated to content, losing the essence of any kind of really good, solid content. You're losing the humanity. You're losing the quality if everything is basically AI generated. So the human needs to be in the loop every single time. Every time I generate a script from it, I want to make sure that I'm touching every single sentence or that I actually understand it and can recontextualize it, that I'm not just regurgitating what it's giving me. And so you'll understand quality control very, very quickly. But the future is probably going to be more like what Ray Kurzweil had envisioned, or in my hope, the folks at Singularity University, or what I call the exponentialists who really believe in accelerating change. And the fact that when artificial technologies will transcend human biology, that's when we could really extend and expand our lifetimes and then you have the transhumanists who really are making it their mission to live forever or do crazy things like literally upload their cognition and consciousness into their laptops and do crazy things like that where they could emulate. It's called whole brain emulation, right? Give me a snapshot mm. of my brain, what this whole thing that consists of my likeness, my DNA, how I feel, how I think, my consciousness, basically my identity, who I am as an individual can be replicated and simulated and put into the metaverse. So that's what whole brain emulation is. And that's what people are positing as the future. Folks thought that was 50 years, 100 years into the future. But with everything going on with these major milestones, it could be a whole lot sooner. So what you're saying is AI is actually going to be breathing new life into the web. Yes. It's going to make it more vibrant and diverse, not the opposite. I'd like to think that it's going to start off as both and then it will naturally iterate to the point of higher quality standards and really just be embedded in everything that we do, not just if you look at the web interface as a whole, right? It's me looking at a screen on my computer, but we're going to see these interfaces start to change. The UI, the UX is going to be completely different, that it's going to be more embedded within us. And that's what Elon is doing with Neuralink. Obviously, there's going to be a ton of regulation around this, but you kind of can see the signs that are pointing in this direction of us being closer and closer with these machines. I think the misconception is that just because this thing is in my hand and it's not in me, I believe it was what David Chalmers calls the extended mind thesis. The fact that it's mm. like outside of my skin, we have the skin back bias and the fact that it is outside of us, therefore it is not natural. When really we're all made from really the same stuff. If you go back millions and millions of years ago, beyond our Pleistocene ancestors, when we were single-celled organisms, we basically came from the same multicellular organisms. And it just, we spiraled out of it because of diversity, but now it's being reintegrated back. So that's what the futurists, the exponentialists are thinking is happening with this age of AI. Interesting. And where I'm not able to go beyond is how they're going to solve this problem. And eventually they will solve this problem. But take Bard, for example, right? So we had this question that we asked Bard, what it thinks of Emergence Now, the podcast. And it answers with a hallucination 
okay, manifestation, but let's just go with hallucination for a moment. Now, if someone were to take that information and put it back on the web, right, now it's part of the internet. And so next time I send a query to the internet or a prompt and I get a part of that with a little bit of what is actually factually true, now I have a hallucination wrapped around what is factually true. And now it becomes indistinguishable as to yeah. what is true and what isn't, right? And so now we're chewing the same gum over and over and over again. And so this is a really hard problem that the AI community is going to have to solve because you want integrity in the data, mm -hmm. right? It makes sense. What you said, which is it's going to probably reduce in quality or the standard before it actually starts getting really, really good. Yeah, most definitely. We've had these types of things going on for a really long time. AI is just exacerbating mm -hmm. them. If you think of terms like control the narrative and things happening in the mainstream media and things being exacerbated with fake news. And like I mentioned, Social Dilemma and Netflix, which we definitely need to include in the show notes. And these types of things where our perspective is constantly being shifted with the narratives that are being told. It Taking this down to first principles, everybody just seems to be making shit up, right? Everybody's just making things up. And to the degree in which people are losing trust over what we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, there's some positives to this in that you can literally create your world and it gives you an unprecedented amount of freedom with what you can do in your life, but everybody needs a cohesive ground truth through which we can agree on something to stabilize society and really work on behalf of each other instead of just for ourselves. And so this is really how energy moves. And there's a direct correlation with how energy moves and what we start to perceive. And we could unpack that a whole lot more in future episodes. But yeah, it can't be so malleable that we don't trust absolutely anything. And so I do believe that there are going to be many organizations that are going to uphold the integrity of information with these collective energies and people just coming together and it could look like a blockchain, right? So what does immutability look like when something has such structural integrity that you know that you can trust it and can't be manipulated? And so we can definitely get into structures like that. How many people would agree it's via consensus that this pod charger is white? No matter how many times I say, hey guys, this is black. Like I could do that and I could say, wave the magic wand, but how many people would believe you? There's a small sub-segment of people that are colorblind that probably would, but society is based on consensus. And so we need to use consensus mechanisms to basically provide this foundational structure of information integrity across what will be the web of the future. Fascinating. The infinite optimist. You heard it here first. That's right. So when people ask me, how do we prepare for AI or what can we do to make sure that we're not left behind? How would you answer that question? Absolutely. Do everything that you're doing today, which is you need to just dive in and use these tools mm. and you just need to be aware. A lot of people in the tech space, at least, it feels like everybody in the tech space, they can't talk about anything else. And every single business right now is they're chasing the white shiny ball and they're like, how could I incorporate generative AI in my strategy? How could I integrate 
into this with OpenAI such that I could incorporate large language models into my business. We can definitely get into the business tech side just with respect to the risks there and the privacy, the governance, the restrictions that you need to put in place if you're going to basically plug an LLM into your data warehouse with lots of proprietary client data. You have to be very rigorous and restrictive about how you do that. You need to adhere to a governance pipeline, a modeling pipeline, model ops, things like that. But basically dive in and don't be afraid. Embrace yeah. it. Embrace the change. That's going to be a constant theme in emergence now is just constantly embracing change and be a power user. And I would also go so far as to say the more that you understand these technologies, it's funny because one whole band is singing this tune that says all of the coders and all of the people with specialized jobs are going to get automated away by these machine learning models. Yet your skill sets are so specialized. If you know just a high level, just enough to be dangerous, you don't have to learn how to code. You just have to understand it and hold a conversation like we are about and have an opinion and have a good opinion about what these things are, what its implications are. And you will naturally be held in higher regard than somebody off the street that doesn't know what the hell is going on. And so it starts with awareness and then you dive in and then you use the tools. And next thing you become an augmented human and then you become mm. superhuman. So it depends on what you want to do on that journey to start augmenting yourself and becoming what you used to read about in your own comic books. So I'll leave the audience with that. What I would add to that is adaptability, right? So embrace change, absolutely crucial, and to be adaptable because adaptability is the key to survival in the age of AI, right? I mean, we are the most cutting edge of our lineage, right? Every generation has surpassed the generation that came before it. And the next generation is going to surpass this generation. And this generation created AI. And the next generation is going to create something that's going to look and be much more powerful than the existing version of AI, right? So adaptability is key. If we want to stay relevant and to thrive in this ever-changing world, we need to be willing to change, as Nico said, to change and adapt, right? By following simple things like being open to change, being curious, being flexible is paramount. Adaptability is the ability to change and adjust to new situations. We are in a new situation. It's a new paradigm. It's the ability to learn new things and be in the conversation, as you said, and to be curious and to think outside the box and solve problems creatively using these tools. So in the age of AI, adaptability is more important than ever. And I'll say this last point, machines are becoming increasingly capable. They're already starting to take some of the tasks that humans used to do. But there's some other things that machines can't do. They can't be creative. Yes, they can to a certain extent, but they can't empathize. They can't understand social interactions. These are all things that make us human. And they're the things that give us the competitive edge in the age of AI, to be more human, to connect more with humanity. So in this episode, we built on the foundation that we laid last week. And as we mentioned, we are putting together a series on AI because this is what we've been getting as feedback from listeners and from friends and family who want to learn more about AI. 
So we're truly grateful that you listened to the show. Thank you. And we look forward to having you join us on the next show. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Emergence Now, where we explore the emerging trends, technologies, and ideas that are shaping our world today for you to discover yourself. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights that you can apply in your own life. If you want to stay up to date with our latest episodes, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We share additional content, engage with our community, and keep the conversation going. Thank you for listening to Emergence Now, and we hope you will join us for the next episode.